0: All right, let's get started. Let's pray. Uh, let's pray. Dear Father God, we thank you for bringing us together this day. Lord, thank you for the time of worship together that we've had. Lord, thank you that we are able to discuss uh, all of church history and uh, what you have done amongst your people, even in our creative arts, Lord. Lord, guide our discussion today. In Christ's name, amen. All right. it's Like we have in previous weeks, I'm going to pull something out of the prayer book. And you've probably heard this one before. It's quite well known. This is a prayer in the tradition of Francis of Assisi. It is uh, probably not by Francis of Assisi. We have a decent bit of Francis writing, and this isn't in it, but it is definitely reflective of his uh, mindset of his teaching. Because Lord make me an instrument of your peace. Where there, there where there is hatred, let me show let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is discord, union. Where there is error, truth. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may seek not so much to be consoled as to console. To be understood understood as to understand to be loved as to love for it is in giving that we receive it is in pardoning that we are pardoned and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life amen so today we are going to start kind of where we left off last time so uh, last time we talked a bit about the medieval abbeys, especially in uh, uh, Great Britain and Ireland, and one how the uh, how the abbeys were means of not only spreading the gospel, but also. Preserving a lot of the knowledge and culture that had existed before the Middle Ages. Uh, and we talked about illuminated manuscripts and, and how amazing and intricate they became and what works of art those illuminated manuscripts still are today that we have preserved from that period of time. We also talked about how Abbot Sujet who is at the Abbey of Saint-Denis in France, began the whole movement of Gothic architecture and how many of our churches today reflect that architecture that that was started back then at that Abbey. And so along those same monastic lines, we are going to start today with St. Columbanus, just for a minute, though, this is Columbanus. He is, he was a, um, a 7th century monk in Ireland. However, he left Ireland. He started monasteries uh, all across Ireland and Great Britain. And then, towards the end of his life, he moved to the continent. He started, uh, he started monasteries in France, and eventually uh, he moved to Italy. Uh, and his last monastery was at a town called Bobbio in Italy. Uh, and there uh, it's written Bobbio maintained... Uh, the role of Columbanus in many of the Celtic styles of Christianity. The rule of Columbanus, sorry. <laughs> uh, which the, a rule is uh, basically the head of a monastery or a head of a monastic movement. We think of uh, the famous rule of St. Benedict is the most famous example. But that is the way of life that that an abbot and those who followed after him would structure their lives. Uh, so prayer cycles and the basic focuses of their ministry. So Bobbio maintained the rule of Columbanus and many of the Celtic styles of Christianity, including Columbanus' love of animals, care for creation, uh, and uh, other major parts of his teaching. So, so the very earthiness that, that he focused on during a lot of his ministry, something that was very well known within the more Celtic culture of, of Christianity, he brought that to the continent or brought it back to the continent. And there at Bobbio was... Uh, uh, He did a lot of writing, and that monastery still exists, still existed centuries later. So about 600 years after St. Columbinus, uh, his teachings and the monks of Bobbio are thought to have influenced a young man named Francis from the city of Assisi, also there in Italy. Uh, having left the military and the life of a troubadour, Francis was determined to live for God. He quite possibly learned some of what he included in his own rule of life from the rule and life of Columbanus. The overlaps are remarkable, but let me tell you a little bit about Francis. Now, Francis, that's a name you'll hear. Obviously, we think of him as a Catholic saint, but then we hear about him in our own tradition as well. He's sort of well-respected across various Christian traditions. So what's his story? First, this is Francis. Uh, uh, this, This is a much later painting, Francis. This one... Is at, was actually done two years after his death, so it 's probably a pretty good representation um, Francis was born a um, his his given name was actually uh, is actually Giovanni <laughs> uh, but but Francis became his nickname, or Francesco became his nickname, because, because he was such a hedonist growing up. He, uh, he loved partying. He, he loved following, like, troubadour troops uh, who would go, go around uh, singing songs, you know, the very bohemian lifestyle as we would think of it today and he eventually adopted a lot of that practice eventually he joined the military um uh, and and uh i in a war against a neighboring town uh lot lots of stuff happened there uh he got thrown in jail at one point and his wealthy merchant parents had to bail him out. <laughs> uh, and uh, but but after that time, something something broke with uh, with Francis. He 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 wanted something more from life than what he had experienced thus far. His his hedonistic lifestyle. His Uh, his experience with the war and everything, it just wasn't clicking. It wasn't fitting for him. Uh, And and so, speed up a little bit. He finds himself one day uh, wandering the fields. He loved to wander in the fields. And he goes to this a uh, small church on the outside of town called San Damiano. And while he's uh, visiting San Damiano, which is absolutely crumbling, uh, uh, like uh, there were huge holes in the roof, like if uh, if you happened to be in, in there when it was raining, you might get an accidental baptism. Uh, <laughs> It, it, was, it was in terrible, terrible shape. And he's there, and he's staring up at the cross that hung over the altar. This is a replica of that cross in the very center. Uh, here, here is an early picture of, uh, of Francis uh, gazing at that cross. There is San Damiano still today. Uh, and and he, uh, as he was looking at that cross, uh, it's reported that he heard, Francis, Francis, go and repair my house, which, as you can see, is falling into ruins. Now, Francis took this very literally. And... <laughs> And he started rebuilding that actual church. <laughs> it was only later that, uh, that he figured that this did not just mean like rebuilding the literal church. Uh, building. Uh, which he did. He did. And as you can see, it still stands today. It's really tiny. Um, and he started working on... The other churches in the area as well. But uh, uh, Francis realized he desired a simpler way of life than what, uh, what he had had so far. And so he started, uh, he's, he decided he wanted to live by the Gospels, uh, specifically Christ's teaching. In the Sermon on the Mount, and he wanted to live as a poor person, uh, as a beggar, as, on very little means, uh, as as he perceived uh, Christ and his followers doing. But Francis was known for for several things. Uh, one, he would. He was very well known, and I am doing a total injustice to his story right now. I could talk for hours about Francis. But he was known for his love of nature. This is, the, uh, this is a painting uh, by Jocko, uh still fairly early, only a few decades after uh, Francis' death. This is Francis pre- preaching to the birds. <laughs> He, he loved connecting uh, uh, with, with the animals, with the creatures around, uh, uh, around the Assisi and his followers because he, he uh, gathered a following really quickly, often from other uh, very aristocratic or wealthy merchant backgrounds. Who who wanted a radically different shift in life, and uh, and the, and so uh, the reason I'm sure all of you have seen little statues of Francis <laughs> uh, in people's gardens, <laughs> uh, and and that's because he was known so uh, so much uh, for seeing. Uh, seeing the goodness of God in creation a lot uh, theologically uh, uh, it 's something we refer to as uh, as general revelation the the ability to see uh, to see some revelation of God in the world around us and he wrote about this so. Uh, some of his most famous writing is in a hymn he composed uh, about two years before his death. He died at age 44. Uh, in many ways, uh, uh, I want to be like Francis. There are certain ways I don't want to be like Francis. He was a bit of an ascetic. <laughs> he, uh, uh, he was very into uh, self-denial and everything, and we think that probably contributed to his death. But two years before his death, he composed this hymn called Canticle of the Creatures. Some people also refer to it as the Canticle of the Sun because of the second verse. And I'm not going to read all of it to you, Uh, but but uh, it starts out most high, all powerful. Good Lord, yours are the praises, the glory, the honor and all blessing to you alone. Most high do they belong and no man is worthy to mention your name. Be praised, my Lord, through all your creatures, especially uh, through my Lord, brother, son, who brings the day and you give life. Through him, and he is beautiful and radiant in all his splendor. Of you, most high, he bears the likeness. Praise be, praise be you, my Lord, through Sister Moon and the stars in heaven. You form them clearly and precious and beautiful. And he talks about the wind, and he talks about the water. He talks about fire and earth, and all of these other creations, and how all of these other creations reflect the glory of God. Uh, now, at this point, you are thinking, wow, what a hippie. <laughs> but about 100 years ago, actually about 115 years ago now, this, this hymn became one of uh, the most well-known hymns in our hymnals today. Uh, A little paraphrase of it. Uh, Can anyone think of what it is? Uh (laughs) Aha! There we go. (laughs) And of course, it's simplified, but but yeah, in around 1906 or so. Dating of hymns is always tricky. Uh, William Draper uh, took the canticle of the creatures and paraphrased it and set it to a 17th century German tune, and, uh, and that is uh, what we have today as all creatures of our God and King. Now, uh, of course, there are a couple of other tunes we'll sing with these words now, as as well, including, including the tune of the doxology. Uh, but this was the original setting, and, uh, and so I find it uh, remarkable that, uh, just, just like so many of the other things we've talked about, that the words of St. Francis from over eight centuries ago are still carried forward in all of our hymnals today. Now Francis... What okay. uh, uh, this was about two years before uh, he died that he, he wrote the Canticle of the Creatures, except for the last verse. Uh, the uh, praise be to you, my Lord, through our sister bodily death. Apparently, he wrote that uh, about two hours before his own death. <laughs> uh, I, he, w- he, was, he was with a couple of his uh, Franciscan uh, brothers at that, at that point, and they had sung through this entire canticle together. Uh, he was very at peace there at the end of his life, and, and he added this verse at the end. Uh, but, uh, but the year before, actually, the Christmas before, he did one other thing, and this, uh, this is something we will also all recognize today. This is this has become such a part of our Christian culture uh, that uh, that uh, it's it's carried forward. Um, well, we we do it every Christmas so far. In the medieval times, it was it was easy for Christmas to to become a time of, of partying, a time of revelry, a time of pretty much anything else but focusing on the nativity of Jesus. Sound familiar? It was, uh, it was even in a lot of ways, more so than even today. It was, uh, it was a crazy time there were, there were drunken parties in the streets. <laughs> it, was, it was more New Year's Eve than even what we think of as secularized Christmas today. And Francis saw this as a problem. He took his kind of dramatic background from his troubadour days, and troubadours would often... Uh, uh, have little bits of drama amidst their their singing and uh, revelry. And everything. He, he decided, okay, I'm, I'm going to uh, uh, m- make this connect with people. I'm going to make this real for people. So, on the outskirts of Assisi, uh, in a small... Uh, a uh, small village called Grishio. uh really just a cluster of houses. Uh, there was a cave. He decided, okay, this this is going to be real. He uh, he got animals. He uh, he set up a manger and 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 uh, got a few people to you know. Uh, uh, to act and uh, and then led the people out of Assisi, out of the village, and brought them to a a replica of the uh, of the Nativity of Jesus, and and Francis had been. Uh, to Jerusalem, by this point, he had actually met the Shah who controlled Jerusalem at this point and and while uh, his attempt at converting the the Shah to Christianity was unsuccessful, the Shah thought very highly of him and obviously didn 't kill him. <laughs> uh, uh, and, and sent him back in peace. But his time in the Holy Land furthered, uh, furthered Francis' desire to, um, uh, to spread the gospel in impalpable ways to his own people. And so, and so this is the cave there in, uh, outside of Assisi. It is now enclosed in a convent, uh, uh, a, a Franciscan sanctuary there there uh, in Gritio. And uh, you can see um, Francis kneeling uh, before the manger. Uh, uh, You'll also see uh, a picture of Mary nursing Jesus. And everything. That night, after he after he led the people to to that hillside cave, uh, a a priest who was part of this movement uh, blessed uh, blessed the sacrament and said mass. And Francis, who was only ever ordained a deacon, said, "No one looked down on your deacons." Um. <laughs> uh. Uh. Fran- uh. Fran- Francis preached the message on the. Uh, uh. On the nativity that night. Francis was not the only person to use drama and drama in very. Uh. Uh participatory ways uh, to talk about the Bible and its message during that time. Actually, since the uh, since about the 5th century parts of the church service had started in certain parts of the world to be dramatized. Uh, one of the uh, one of the ways that still carries forth to this day within the church service is the Good Friday service. Uh, the, the Roman Catholics still do this. Anglicans still do this. Uh, but, but when we get to the trial of Jesus, uh, uh, it will often be done as a call and response. Like many parts of our liturgy, but but the people participate as the crowd that calls for the uh, that calls for the crucifixion of Jesus. Eventually, this progresses. This progresses to to things being staged outside the church, inside the church all of the language is still Latin. So unless your Latin is pretty good as as an uneducated layperson in the Middle Ages, you're probably not getting a ton out of that. But outside the church, things can be spoken in the vernacular, and they are. And so you start having things called mystery plays. Mystery, in this sense uh, means means sacramental. It doesn't mean, oh, what's that? Um, uh, so we're not talking Sherlock Holmes here. Uh, we're talking uh, we're talking dramatizations of of Bible stories, especially stories that would really capture the imaginations of the people. Okay, They were often very processional in nature, so, so you would guide people from this part of town to this part of town. To this part of town, and and there might be uh, things done just in the little squares. Uh, there might be a stage or two set up, but these were not uh, these were not our typical idea of a play today in the normal you know little proscenium arch box. Uh, these. Uh, these were very involved for, for the people who were attending. Uh, characters were obviously more lifelike than, than what had even developed within the, uh, within the use in the church liturgies over the years. The church had become... Uh, in the, in the later centuries, in the, uh, in the 9, 10, 1100s, have become pretty dramatic in even its readings of Scripture and its presentations. Uh, and eventually you see things happening uh, as people come back from Jerusalem, uh, both uh, uh, through various crusades and through pilgrimages, you have the stations of the cross being set up in in churches to replicate the experience of uh, of following the Via Dolorosa and and visiting the various places on the route to Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, but outside the churches, things become very very elaborate. Uh, and again, in the vernacular, so people could fully understand. eventually I'm going to go a little short today. Um, eventually, what happens with the mystery plays uh, while you get uh, while you get the stories most of the stories originally start as a sort of fall redemption, judgment story. Eventually, uh, as we draw closer and closer to the Reformation, that gets very skewed. That gets very skewed towards judgment because what do we all like? A little bit of spectacle. (laughs) We, 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 like the things that are that are creepy, that uh, that that give us a little bit of the shivers, and so the judgment plays, are uh, are what eventually come to the forefront. These are huge, uh, especially on the continent during uh, during the time of Martin Luther. Uh, and, and what do people want to do? Bring in some of, uh, you know, bring in some of that good uh, uh, theology of purgatory that has developed, uh, and and these become uh, real ticket selling items for for indulgences. And we'll talk a little bit more about that next time. Uh, but, uh, uh, but these, uh, judgment plays in some ways, uh, though, though not, not with the, uh, uh, buy your ticket out of purgatory deal still exist in some form today. If you grew up in evangelical subculture, you may have visited one, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, I grew up, uh, uh, I remember my, my first example was my first year of college. I don't know how I missed it earlier, but uh, there were these things called judgment houses or hell houses. And it's basi- basically a Halloween haunted house. Uh, it's typically done uh, in Hall- around the time of Halloween. Uh, but, but uh, they they lead you through, and uh, there are some pretty uh, remarkably grotesque scenes of what happens to you if you uh, uh, if you don't uh, uh, if you don't come to Jesus right then and there. So, so these uh, these spectacular plays still still exists in some form today with a bit of today's uh, developments. But, But yeah, next time, we will get into the Reformation and what happens to the art world, the changes in art that happened directly as the cause of the Reformation, and why uh, we have two very different appearances of church buildings today, and that goes back to our Reformation time period. So, uh, any any questions today? Yeah. Yeah. So this is it's kind of the same thing you go to play guy says like comes up during the intermission and says, and I'll sell you an indulgence now. <laughs> like, yeah. What we're talking about. Yeah. Um there is there is a movie version of the life of Martin Luther. It came out about eighteen years ago. And and what you'll see during that uh, during a certain scene, uh, is you'll see one of these mystery plays about the day of judgment, and uh, and it's very dramatic, and you have you know, people going this way, people going going that that way, and and then one of these indulgence sellers who was sent, uh, who was often sent, uh, either they were uh, brought on by a um, by the church itself, or maybe a prince in that area, uh, but that they would come and they, you know, they had these indulgences and like, and and uh, you know, for such and such amount, uh, you can have this certificate that uh, that means you get to go this way, not this way, when you die. Uh, so it was it was a gross, gross abuse that that eventually developed, you know, toward towards towards those last you know, couple of centuries of of uh, before the Reformation. Uh, what started as, you know, just a good dramatization of Bible stories became this way of manipulating people. Yeah, Jacob. Do these plays um, use translations of scripture, or is it more just paraphrase? Uh, That's that's a good question. I don't know how close to the actual, uh, how close to an actual translation of scripture it was, but but I know, you know, widely, we didn't have uh, translations of scripture into the vernacular at that time. So if it was a translation, it was simply those stories. But something like, uh, like judgment plays, uh, uh, from from the few examples that I've seen, are more paraphrase-like. Uh, you know, they may translate. A little part, a little part, but it's it's broadly just retelling the story. Jason? Uh, St. Francis preaching the animals. Did he really preach the animals? Or, and, 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 and if so, what in the world did he say to them? Do we have a record of that? Or is it just people saying, oh, he preached the animals because he loved nature? And pe- people, people take. Uh, like, there are stories of St. Francis, you know, ab- about nature and everything, but then there, there's a lot of exaggeration about Francis over the years. We we get legends of Francis uh, in the centuries afterward. Like, uh, there's, there's a famous story of St. Francis and the wolf. Uh, he, he goes out and... St- and uh, talks to a wolf and gets a wolf to stop attacking a village or whatever. And we don't have any real source for, for, saying, for saying that near his lifetime. So, so lots of legends about Francis are built up uh, just based on the fact that uh, he, he loved... Communing with nature, loved to see God's glory in the beauty of creation, and and wanted to live you know uh, off nature and everything. It that kind of spirals over the centuries into preaching to animals, and and uh, talking to wolves and things like that. Now the preaching that the uh, the painting of of him preaching to the birds. Uh, which again, I have not read uh, anything directly from his time period, but that painting is from only about a century after he lived. But still, he was canonized, and this is a very rare thing, he was canonized within the century after his death, which uh, is, is fairly uncommon. We've had you know a couple of instances of the Catholic Church doing that in recent times, but it's it's pretty rare. Um, one thing that is strange uh, that that we have documented during his time is he's apparently the pers- the first person uh, on record to experience stigmata, uh, which is uh uh, showing the wounds of Christ uh, on your hands and feet, typically. Can you repeat what his his years, his birth, Those were yes, yes. He was he was born in 1181 or 1182, uh, and he died on October 3rd, 1226. So you're right there in in those waning. Couple of centuries before the Reformation. This is where certain doctrines really start. It's, it's after the split between the Eastern and Western church, obviously, and it's when a lot of doctrine starts really spiraling out of hand in the Western church. Any other questions? All right. We'll get back into more visual art uh, next time. actually structured today, so if I didn't have the slides available, I could still teach it. (laughs) Uh, I left my adapter here last week. (laughs) All right. All right. Thank you guys so much.